Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. All righty, we're back. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast. Jeff Gannon, Focus Compounding Podcast. Coming to you live from Dallas, Texas. How's it going today, Jeff? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going fantastic. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If you are new here to us, uh, either through YouTube or the podcast app, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you're on podcast app, uh, also hit that. I think it's subscribe, right? I forgot. Follow, subscribe. I don't know. It notifies you. Subscribe, uh, yeah. Subscribe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you make sure you hit that button, <laughs> and it'll, it'll tell you when we upload um, a podcast. Uh, so. In the last uh, podcast, we had talked about um, how to structure your day, right? Right, and I thought it'd be good to uh, go over a bunch of questions that people have asked of us on Twitter. Okay, um, as I always say, it's good because then we're talking about what's on our listeners' minds instead of what's on our minds, and I mm-hmm. think it's always fun to do that. So, um, we talked. One of the best podcasts we did okay. was on handicapping a stock. All right, and. I think it's got like the least amount of views out of all really? the, uh, yeah. And Maybe the people have listened the right to it. Title. I've got a lot of emails saying this is the best podcast you've yeah. done, but it's gotten the least amount of views. I think it's because I uploaded it on July 4th, oh. which was probably the reason mm. why. Yeah. So go watch that podcast okay. or listen to that podcast because I think it's, I mean, I'm biased, but okay. I do think it's one of the best podcasts mm-hmm. we've ever done. But I'm guessing this is a follow-up question to okay. that podcast. Um, and the gentleman asked, he said, what would handicapping with EV to EBITDA or EB, EV to EBIT be better than using PE? Less mm-hmm. affected by leverage. Yes. And that's the reason why he asked that. Yeah. So what's your thought on that? Yes. So n- nor- normally, like if you were saying I'm running a big screen or something, I'm doing this whole group of stocks, absolutely. I would use EV to EBITDA or EV to EBIT instead of PE. Uh-huh. Absolutely. So if you're talking about like value investing, what is it? I would say buying low EV to EBITDA yeah. and low EV to EBIT makes more sense than low PE. And I mean, and, and uh I guess EBITDA, it takes out a different, um, it's a more of an apples to apples approach, right? Different depreciation schedules, right. different, you know. Yeah. There, uh, I don't know, rates, like, like in terms of studies, how big the difference is between EV to EBIT and EV to EBITDA. In yeah. most, um, like, academic studies, it would have some effects in individual stocks that could be pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you were saying, like, an industry or something, like you're picking the stock with the lowest P in an industry yeah. or the lowest EV to EBITDA, I would say lowest EV to EBITDA. Um, when screening, I use EV to EBITDA, but that's because it's further up the income statement if I'm looking at things that are foreign versus um, not, the, just accounting things. I mean, no measure is perfect, but PE is going to be the least perfect sure. um, yeah. that way. And so you don't want to miss ideas just because you've used that. Yeah, I remember when we first started Focus Compounding, you wrote about, um, you know, if... Um, would you say if EBITDA is bullshit earnings, right? right? And you talked about moving up the income statement if you want mm-hmm. to like properly look at a company, right? Yeah, uh, and so I talked about gross profits. I talked yeah. about all sorts of different things and, and ways of comparing them. And when we did the, um, there's a lot of uh, reports on the Focus Company website that are long form reports, and we look at EV to sales, EV to gross profit, uh, EV to EBIT. Um, for all sorts of different companies uh, in EVD, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, in some cases it makes very little difference, like almost none. So it doesn't matter if you're valuing a ad agency. It doesn't matter if you're using EVD, but or EVD, but um, but 
but that's also an accounting thing because 40 years ago or something, it might have. Like in media, it would have mattered 40 years ago more than it matters now. Uh, so when you hear about Buffett using like measures of cash flow or something um, in the capital cities days where he's investing in those things, that's because of how they wrote off acquisitions of uh, TV stations and radio stations, things like that. Um, the one thing that I should mention, though, is that some companies hold a lot of cash and uh, that value investors like. Mm-hmm. I invested in one called George Risk a long time ago, but I held it for like six or seven years. Um, that can be deceptive that the EV to EBITDA or something. Like when I bought it, I think it had a negative. Yeah, yeah, definitely had a negative um, enterprise value. So the EV to EBITDA would have shown up as me paying nothing for it, right? Because it had net, ca- like it had net cash, cash. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it had so much net cash that it covered the market cap, yeah. right? Um, in those kinds of situations, you also want to look at PE. No matter what, you want to look at both, I would say. Um, P can also be deceptive in other ways. So sometimes you want to use EV to sales. That's a better measure. I was talking to someone recently, and um, there's a stock with a very low PE ratio, but it's a very cyclical stock, and it's actually a very popular stock. But its PE might be five or something right now. But that isn't unusual for a commodity company when it's having um, uh, a shortage in the industry, right? So the prices go skyrocketing and everything. And um, that happens a lot, where in cyclicals, the PE may be at its lowest when you shouldn't buy it, when the stock's actually at its most expensive. And then in the PE will actually be extremely high. They'll have almost no earnings at the point where you should buy it. So you can use asset values and also sales. I really do recommend people always looking at EV to sales. Yeah, yeah. and that's one that you do use a lot. Yeah. Um, next question. What are all the various types of stock slash equity compensation to management slash directors? How do you tell when they are paying for them versus getting them for free? Um, so you go to the proxy statement that they have yeah. uh, for companies that file with the SEC, and it will show you uh, how management is compensated, how the top people in the company are, the top paid people in the company are p- paid, and um, sort of uh, in what form. So if it's cash versus um, perks versus uh, stock. And it may also give information about um, stock ownership requirements and things like that. I was reading one of a stock that we own. It didn't have a lot of information about um, stock options or something, but it said that it didn't think that it was – it thought that they were adequately aligned without adopting any rules about that because um, the restricted stock that they gave generally meant that the people had to hold it for 10 years. Um, for, for to be able to get most of it out. So, you know, that's different than a stock option that um, people would be paid as they were often in, like, the late 90s or something, which really has to do with short-term performance of the stock. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how important it is. I think it's important. Um, it gives you some idea of what they're looking at. So if they're looking at um, returns on equity and things like that versus other things. Um, but... You know, I, uh, there's a lot of it is industry specific. So you'll just find certain industries where people tend to get paid very high base salaries and things. In banking or something, there's a great, much greater tendency for that to happen than in certain other industries like tech or something where they might get a lot of stock options and things like that. Sure. Yeah. But the goals of what they want to hit to achieve those things are part of it. Um, Buffett talked in some interview recently about the fact that, you know, to a large extent, those goals are just created for tax purposes, because if they don't, if they make the compensation contingent on something, then they're able to treat it differently than if they were paying very, very high base salaries. So that's why you tend not to see someone paid a $20 million base salary. Um, but they can set goals so low that they're going to make $20 million every year, you know, and Mm -hmm. that does happen. Cool. 
Um, next question, in venture capital, the focus is on which companies can innovate and disrupt the most. With public companies, it is which companies can maintain their competitive advantage the longest. Which public companies, in your view, both have a competitive advantage while having a high capacity to innovate? Um, Amazon, Copart, Hunter Douglas. Um, I was going to say Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Amazon. Um, you'd like to see Apple do it. A lot of people kind of, right. you know, I mean, they definitely have a competitive advantage, but there's mm-hmm. also a lot of people that are upset by the lack of innovation there. Sure. I mean, I, I would argue they yeah. innovate. I mean, the Apple watch, what, six years ago, wasn't even a thing. And now it's the most popular watch. Yeah. On earth, you know, in general, you, uh, Tesla, Tesla has <laughs> innovation. Tesla has innovation. Yeah. Uh, whether they not have so not so much Probably. competitive advantage. Don't um, bring the Tesla crowd here. We don't want okay. them. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, um, well, I mentioned Copart, and there's a great book that yeah. you should read that's Junk to Gold. But also there's the IAA spinoff, so from cars spinning off um, insurance auto auctions. Yep. And um, That spinoff already happened? I don't know, as of from we're um, doing this recording. Uh, what, what company is spinoff? KAR, right? KAR, yeah. yeah. So KAR is spinning off a company which is comparable to Copart. Yes, yes. However, if you read that book and other things that I've learned about Copart over the years, I'm not sure if it's as comparable the organizations as people think. Mm-hmm. But all the write-ups are based on the idea that eventually IAA will achieve the same um, uh, returns on sales and things yeah. like that. Yeah, that's the how same a, lot margins. Of people, a lot of people value Correct. the IAA yeah. part. If you've seen like, yeah. um, people do write-ups about that, that's the way that that's the way everybody's thinking. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm not sure if you should always value you know, um, that, I mean, it may be that there are cases where that's true, but I don't know that you would want to value every, um, brand, uh, you know, as if, you know, um, eh, I don't know if you'd want to value it as if, you know, Dr. Pepper will have the same, um, margins as Coke or whatever, you know, and, uh, sometimes it will. And sometimes it's something specific to the situation. Like it's being run poorly, you know, one is being run poorly, one's being run really well. Sometimes it's big, organizational differences over time and sometimes it's structural differences in terms of what customers they have and stuff i I tend to think that people um investors tend to downplay any idea of the organizational advantages and stuff and think about it only in terms of the structure of like who their customers are and things like that Mm -hmm. um and i don't know i think the organizational stuff is pretty big long term bigger than investors tend to think um if you have a company that was created based on the idea of always having low costs and that's what people were obsessed with um, even 10, 20, 30 years later, they're going to outperform the company that sells the same stuff but didn't have that culture from the beginning, even if they have the same sorts of things. And I think people underestimate that, whether it's uh, certain banks that I've seen, but also you know Walmart and Southwest and things. They think it's just their explanation for their advantages is purely a structural thing, which I don't think would have happened in other sorts of organizations. I was talking to someone recently about that, where I was talking about sort of the culture of the company and how, who they're able to attract and things like that, and whether, you know, his assumption was that bigger competitors could do the same thing. And I don't disagree with that. They could do the same thing. Yeah. But the thing that they'd have to change about their culture is so big um, in terms of how they compensate people and things. So, like, this company um, was much more built on long-term relationships and, in particular, didn't have sort of commissions and, and certain sales target things. And for a big organization... Uh, they're going to have more pressure to have short-term sorts of things that they do, and they're going to drive away some of their best employees to go and found some other company that does the same thing with Mm -hmm. more of a customer focus. Um, So I don't know that, like, scale would help there. So when you have competitive advantage, I think it's – I think 
a lot of times people think innovation is a good thing. Like, oh, I get the competitive advantage and this company's innovative yeah, or whatever. Yeah. That's not really what you want to see. You want, that, that's yeah. not, you want a company where there isn't a need for to yeah, innovate. Sure. That is a negative. Yeah, so yeah, I'm we saying- We talking about that on the way here. Yeah, I'm saying a Amazon is innovative and that's great and necessary, but it would be better if they were in industries where they didn't need to innovate. Sure. Yeah. And to some extent that's that is true, that too. you know, over time, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely it's true. And innovation going into new areas and doing things, um, disrupting them that someone else was in, uh, is very valuable. But yeah. innovation in the areas that you already have a lot of control over is not something that you want to see. Yeah. You know, um, once Apple became a big player in in their phones, uh, they didn't. You don't want to have a ton of innovation. Sure, there. that's yeah. not good for you. Yeah, no, I thought it was interesting. So I actually was re watching Jeff Bezos give a talk. Um, I forget when he gave the talk, but it, it was recently, and mm -hmm. he was talking about AWS and how right. the success that AWS has had. And he said because normally when you you hit it big with something, mm -hmm. right, like AWS, he's usually like you have about two years before mm -hmm. extreme. If you're first to market, you have about two years before extreme comp competition comes in and, and starts to eat away at your margins. Yeah. He said AWS is one of the only situations in Amazon's history mm -hmm. where they had, I think it was either six or eight years with zero competition. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. I still don't understand it really, so it'd be interesting to hear what he had to say about that. Yeah. But I haven't understood why there wasn't more competition quicker. Yeah. Um, now, there may, in some cases, it may. There's sometimes it's things that, so uh, a lot of times an advantage is that companies who would be in a position to compete with you uh, would have to make a choice that would be harmful to their current situation, strategic choice that would be harmful. So th that often happens. So like I mentioned Hunter Douglas or something, part of the problem is that some of their competitors wanted to be in um, uh, things like Home Depot and Lowe's and stuff. Once you make that choice, you have to have really low prices. Once you have really because low prices- Because you have to compete with them. Be, because they demand it. Because yeah. Home Depot and Lowe's are not gonna put expensive sure. products in it. Yeah. They want things that people feel are a big value bargain mm -hmm. when they go into their store. Same thing if you went to a Walmart or a Costco or something. Yeah. That's a problem you're gonna have. And so they had to rely more on imports of things, you know? Or I mentioned, um, I've mentioned many times on the podcast, George Risk. George Risk is a really small company, but an interesting one because it uh, its competitors, to a large extent, decided to offshore production, figuring that if they went into Asia and stuff to produce, that they would have lower costs and that that would be the thing that matters the most. Sure. It turns out they were wrong. They would have lower costs, but it they just assumed sort of economically that lower costs is what gets you a lot of market share and stuff. But really in that industry, it turned out that cost, the customers weren't that cost sensitive, but they were sensitive to things like on-time delivery and stuff like that. And so they completely screwed themselves up by going offshore, where now when they used to be able to have a shot at doing 99.99% um, deliveries on the right day or whatever, they're now at 90% or something. And yeah, their costs are lower, but the cost of the item is such a small part for their customers and things like that, that it became uh, a mistake that they had sure so you have to make those sorts of strategic choices you know if you uh and that often in terms of competitive advantage is what i see the most is that you have a competitive advantage versus competitors in large part because the competitors have the capacity to do this but they just will not choose that because it would be so disruptive to them i mean the one i always give an example is like um progressive and geico right yeah they they were facing insurers that had every ability to crush them and didn't because they had agents so they would have to ruin their own business, which was to have that they had dedicated agents to be able to do direct, even though they, I'm sure, understood that direct was going to grow, that it was going to be big, all these things, and that they could implement it as well as anyone else. Uh, they're not going to do it, you know. And the same thing, it could be a razor company or whatever. You know, people said, yeah. why doesn't this razor company create, uh, you know, selling online and stuff? Well, because 
in the early quarters and things, they're going to have much worse results by doing that if they're used to selling at, you know, packs that make a lot of money at convenience stores and things, you know. Mm -hmm. They start to rely on that sort of thing. They're not going to disrupt themselves. And that's what happens in all these different industries where companies get a big, they're taking a big amount of profit in some particular market. They may have a better idea for how to do something, but even if they succeed in being the leader in that, they're going to temporarily cause a lot of problems in for the profits they have right now. And sure. they could cause bigger problems long term. So it's not in their interest to innovate. And that's true even with these sorts of companies. It, you know, incremental little innovations of things for Amazon in retail is good. But things that disrupt online stuff are not good for them. Like yeah. trying to do something huge in groceries offline is great for them because they have like no market share there and they have the possibility to take a lot. But trying to come up with new ways to disrupt online is not in their interest and they're, I don't think that they would do it, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And even as coming at it from an investor standpoint, we were talking about this on, on, on the way here, how, um, I mean, we like companies that are more predictable, yeah. right? I mean, Hunter Douglas, how long has that company been around for a very long time? Yeah, right? half a century. Uh, CSI, half we've, a century. we've talked about that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, I mean, I agree with your point where you don't want a company where they have to innovate. You know, maybe if it makes up a small part of your portfolio, because maybe, mm -hmm. but the way that we do it, we don't kind of, we stay away from those companies. Yeah, and there's all sorts of things that you can do to grow and to make little changes all the time uh -huh. um, that are successful that way. I mean, we I wrote a report a while back that's on the Focus Compounding website about uh, Luxottica. Yeah. And that's an example of a company that went into all different markets and did all sorts of different things. But a lot of it was actually to stop innovation that they were worried about, that disruption that they didn't want. Like, I don't think people realize to what extent their ownership of things like LensCrafters and, and Pearl Vision and stuff, moving into that market, huge push into retail, was just because retailers in the U.S. started doing um, big discounting. And so especially they were doing things like, you know, they would take a price, like say it was $200 or something, and they used to sell glasses for $200 prescription. And then they'd say, now it's two for $200 or three for $200 to get people in the stores and stuff. And that was pushing the manufacturers to produce lower quality products, get less profit per person, things like that. There weren't going to be more people wearing glasses. So this is bad for the, the industry is going to make less money, bringing less profit. So they saw that and said, well, we have to get into retail there. Sure. We have to do this to protect what we have. You know, and that there are industries where that happened. I think I've seen things where, um, like Microsoft or something, has had certain bought certain things, or did certain uh, worked on certain innovations because they needed to do it to make sure there wasn't disruption of what you know, basically monopolies that they yeah, had. You uh -huh. know, in in uh, Office and and uh, Windows, yeah. which are the things that really made them the money. Interesting. Okay, next question: What does Jeff consider to be his best investment ever? He says one of his earlier picks, like Villager Activision. Or something more recent like BWX? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, in terms of annualized returns and stuff, uh, I don't know. Um, probably bank insurance was pretty high on that list. So I bought a stock called Bank Insurance. Small company. Very small. I don't remember if the market was $30 million or less. At the time I bought it, probably less. Um, and... Uh, the I wrote some letters to the board and things like that in that case because they were um, going to go private with an owner that owned about 70, 75% of the company at a price that I thought was too low. And uh, eventually you, they, you got a higher price there. And the amount of time to own the stock was very short. Um, but it was partially a matter of luck in that one because I wanted to buy the stock uh, – regardless of that offer being made, I was yeah. going to buy the stock as soon as the SEC investigation was closed. Uh, and then once they announced the SEC investigation was closed, they basically came out right away with the offer to buy the company. When you read about the deal, you realize that's because the board told them we won't consider this offer. Um, until 
Oh, don't come in here. Sorry, we're recording. No worries, thanks. That we, the SEC investigation, the board basically said we're not going to uh, consider an offer from you, you know, a management-led buyout, uh, while you're under investigation from the SEC. As soon as that closes, we'll do it. So that's why the two happened. But um, because of that, I I bought it, and immediately uh, they made a higher offer, and then a higher offer, and then a final offer that was accepted. And uh, because of that, it, it would have gone from under six dollars to over eight fifty or something pretty quickly, and then sold out at that price. So probably an analyzed basis, that was pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, that was certainly really because it cheap. just happened so quickly. Yeah, and also the price they sold the entire company at wasn't that great. So I mean, really? it probably so it des- a- deserved to sell for even more. Um, so in terms of cheapness, that's one of the cheapest stocks I ever bought. Was bank insurance at you know whatever it was half of book value or something when the company should definitely be worth book value? Did it get taken out at book value? Or? No, nine percent uh, book value, something like oh. that. Yeah, but it also while I owned it had gone up book value had gone up 10, 15 percent something yeah. like that. So um, that's one. Uh, in terms of annualized results, I actually had some in Japan that were even better than that. Again. The company was taken over, mm-hmm. so a company being taken over tends to be the highest percentage. Yeah, because I whether that's that. what I would call my best investment in terms of like picking it to own it Pro- probably not i mean i've bought some things that i think were smarter decisions and it also depends on how long it, you know you can make a lot of money if you own a stock for a long time but there's also ones that were really good decisions and then i sold mm-hmm. so the best example of that is i think it was a good decision to buy um fico and then i sold and if i'd held it for 10 years it would have made over 30 percent a year for 10 years so that would have been a, a probably the best investment sure but i sold it and that's usually what happens to people that their best investment is something that they sold too yeah. soon yeah sure what about what's your worst investment that'll be the last question um uh, uh we talked about weight watchers before yeah that's possibly one of them did um, you lose money on weight watchers i did yeah yeah oh yeah i lost 50 percent or something on weight watchers uh-huh. uh 50 of the stock price yeah. um yeah and to this day i think the last time i checked weight watchers is still at a price that's almost 50 percent below where it was when i bought it mm. um however it did in between reach three times the price that i bought yeah. it at yeah, I remember. and also reached um 90 lower than the price i bought it at yeah mm-hmm. so you know it's gone from um yeah, from its the bottom price that it ever hit after I bought it to the top was probably uh, twenty five to thirty times, uh, you know, up. So if someone had bought it at the very lowest point and sold yeah. it at the very highest, in theory, you could have made twenty five times your money. Yeah. Um. But, it, and if you buy the price that I said uh, that I bought it at, you know, um, and talked about it and stuff, and then sold at the low point, you could have lost ninety percent. Right, so it, it is a matter of timing and those things. Sure. It had a lot of debt and it had some other problems that it ran into. Yeah. I think misunderstanding the debt situation was the biggest one, but also Were another they changing one. Changing their business model too. I don't think they intended to change their business model, but they ended up having to. What happened was there are a lot of free apps and things like that came on. Yeah, and um, it's not. We talked in a previous podcast about how the best businesses over the last hundred years or so are as best stocks are tobacco and alcohol. Yeah. Well, you want to be invested in tobacco and alcohol and not in dieting. Yeah. That's the big lesson from it. I yeah. mean, the financial leverage is part of it, but in general, things that are really hard to sell people on that they have to stay committed to, whether it's for their good or not. Um, and that are the the impulses to quit at any time and stuff yeah. is not a business that you generally want to be in and a business that people will uh, keep buying even when they know it's bad for them and all those sorts of things yeah. is a good thing. I mean, the moment a recession hits, everyone decides 
uh, you know, their income goes down or they get fired or whatever, uh, they look at it and they don't cut down on how much cigarettes they're smoking, yeah. how much alcohol they're drinking. Yeah. They're they drinking more alcohol They, now. they <laughs> do cut down on dieting. It's the first thing to go. Yeah. Of all the expenses, up oh, that goes out. Makes sense. My gym membership goes Makes out. Sense. You know, all those sorts of things. <laughs> so that's – but that tells you something about people's preferences, their yeah. real preferences about what they really want to be doing and what they don't want to be doing. Yeah. They want to be drinking and smoking. They don't want to be dieting and exercising. <laughs> I shouldn't and, be laughing. And, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. true. And But that's true in all the sorts of things that we invest in is to think that way is – um, businesses with high retention rates and things. It's a good idea. We talked about how it's a good idea to invest in a business where you don't need to innovate. Yeah. It's a good idea to invest in a business where you don't have to give amazing customer service and stuff to keep someone renewing with you. Sure. It's not a bad idea to because invest. Because they like the product so much. Or because they're lazy or something. Yeah. Uh, really. It's. I mean, for how many people... Um, you know, or or take something like like cable for years and years. How many people use so little of their cable subscription, but would never consider cutting it out because they'd be cutting out something in the package yeah. that someone in the household just it was what they needed. How many people don't want to change? I mean, we deal with something with um, brokerage accounts and things like that. There are a lot of people who probably don't want to switch to a different broker. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And there are tons of people who don't switch banks for no other reason than it would be a hassle to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there's a lot of things like that. And dieting is the opposite of that. It, they, as soon as they have an excuse to quit, they will. Yeah. So, oh, Twist times are a little arm. tougher. Twist quit. My arm. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and whereas the opposite is, you have to do really. Um, a bank has to mess up usually to get someone to to yeah, who has sure. a real series of relationships with that bank not just some transactions that they do but real accounts that they have and all sorts of other things especially with businesses and things uh it has to mess up something it has mm-hmm. to do something wrong for that person to want to leave and go somewhere else yeah. um and that's not true for things like dieting and stuff the moment that someone says there's a free way an easier way a fad i mean we didn't have good data on it but weight watchers dropped quite a lot in their business when the atkins diet came out sure yeah and that was huge to people. I mean, there, there was an estimate that a very large number of American adults who were dieting were dying on Atkins at the time. But it was that the real fad part of it lasted for about 18 months. Yeah. That was it. It was this thing that went from no one doing it to everyone doing it to it was gone again, you know. And so I would say the two things are they used a lot of leverage, right? So that's a mistake in yeah. buying into a company that has a lot of leverage that way. But the bigger thing is I thought it was a predictable company in terms of what it looked like. And I should have better understood that the underlying customer behavior wasn't predictable. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew uh, the psychology of dieting and stuff and the psychology of other sorts of businesses and should have better understood that even though in the 15 or whatever years of data I was looking at, it wasn't being captured, right? It looked predictable absolutely on the numbers, but I should have understood that it's not predictable in the sense of what the, you know, what the business is. And that's true. You see that all the time. There's things where retailers have a good run or restaurants or whatever for 15 or 20 years. But you have to remind yourself of how quickly that could change if, there were, if people had the option to switch, you yeah. know, that they don't really have that much loyalty to whatever. You know, they don't really have loyalty to Radio Shack. So if Radio Shack shows great results for 30 years, that doesn't mean that there's the same thing there as like when you said CSI or something. Yeah. That's a different story. Um so, you know, that was the, I think that's a mistake is misunderstanding that um, with with Weight Watchers. Uh, the stock wasn't very expensive when I bought it. You know, it wasn't super cheap, but on like adjusted for debt and stuff, it wasn't that expensive. Um, if it had continued like it had in the past, it would have done well. Yeah. But it didn't. So it's m- misunderstanding the predictability of it. It's never the price, really. It's not, oh, if I got that a little bit lower price, yeah, that would have yeah. worked out. Mm-hmm. It's thinking that something is a, 
you know, a predictable company when it's not that sort of thing. It's picking the wrong company completely, the wrong business, the wrong industry, things like that. Yeah. So probably Weight Watchers. Cool. Yeah, I figured you were going to. I know we buried the hatchet last time, but I, I didn't. Yeah, I tried to think up. of what other ones were as bad. Um, I can't really think of it. Um, I think when I was a teenager, I once bought a stock and then sold it within like a week. Yeah, I did. I did. It was uh, Washington Mutual. I bought it because I was supposed to, I had read about diversification and stuff. And I was, so you have to diversify. I didn't really understand banks. So I thought I'll just buy a bank that, yeah, you know, yeah. someone says, so some, you know, value investor or whatever was pitching Washington Mutual. And I decided after reading some stuff about the 10K and some other things, I was like, no. And so I sell. sold it right away. And of course, Washington Mutual eventually, you know, went to nothing basically. So that so would have been, sell. in theory, that would have been the worst. Yeah, even something like Weight Watchers. The company still exists. It's yeah. still whatever stock. I mean, it did yeah. survive. It could have not survived, though. I've yeah. said that before, that if there had been uh, tight credit conditions or something, I don't think it would have survived. It only survived because uh, credit was pretty forgiving and gave it enough time to to be able to finance itself while recovering. If that drop in Weight Watchers business had happened like at the financial crisis, it would be gone because no one would lend them the money and continue sure. to do that. Yeah. Cool. Well, that uh, was some good questions. I want to thank everybody so much for asking those questions. If you want to ask a question in the future to have it be on the podcast, uh, either DM me at Focus Compound or tweet at me. Uh, be sure to follow uh, Jeff's Weekly Gazette. Go to FocusCompoundGazette.com. Give us a uh, thumbs up and be able be sure to subscribe and give us a rating review. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.